Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very special episode. I'm hosting Ian Galloway and Tom Flanagan from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Also joining us is Jesse Keenan from Harvard University. The four of us talk about the Community Development Investment Review that the Federal Reserve recently released. This issue of the review focused on climate adaptation, and we learn about how the Federal Reserve is adding their voice to this space. After my discussion about the review, Jesse sticks around to talk about the climate intelligence arms race. Jesse has been looking at how the climate services field has been evolving, and we talk about some of the challenges of dealing with such a new emerging field and what it means for practitioners who need access to reliable information as this emerging technology matures. It was a pleasure to host Ian and Tom from the Federal Reserve, and always a pleasure to talk with Jesse, who's been a regular on the show. Okay, upcoming shows. I have multiple episodes in the works. I'm working on an episode on wildfire, and I'm connecting with a few contacts in Australia so we can cover what has been going on there, and also ways others could adapt to changing fire conditions as the climate changes. I'm also working on a Massachusetts coastal adaptation series. We'll have more on that soon. It is an exciting start to the new year. I'm looking forward to sharing those episodes. Okay, let's jump into this conversation with Ian, Tom, and Jesse and talk about community development and adaptation. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very special episode. Today, I am hosting Ian Galloway and Tom Flanagan, representatives from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Also joining me is Jesse Keenan, professor at Harvard University and a regular voice on this podcast. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thanks for having us. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having us, Doug. Okay. All right. We've got a lot of voices here. It's sometimes a bit difficult to juggle, but Ian, let's start with you. What is your role with the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco? Sure. So I do research on the community development field for the San Francisco Fed. Okay. And what about you, Tom? I work in public affairs, so I get to help Ian magnify some of his work by getting the word out. All right. Jesse, I think everyone knows you, but I want you to introduce yourself again. I'm Jesse Keenan. I'm a faculty member at the Graduate School of Design and the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, where I teach climate adaptation. I was very excited to be able to host you guys here. This is the Federal Reserve. And so when people think of the Federal Reserve Bank, they are usually thinking of interest rates. But the Fed Reserve does a lot more than that. And Ian, we're going to get into a conversation about this review. But could you tell my listeners a bit more about some of these other things, especially community development that the Federal Reserve is involved in? Yeah, sure. Happy to. You know, high level, the Fed's you know primary job is to promote a healthy, stable economy, and and that means looking at a host of current risks and anticipating future ones. And that can be in terms of monetary policy. It can be in terms of the payment system, the banking community, financial system writ large, and the macro economy. Within community development, we're really kind of laser focused on uh, low and moderate income communities. How those folks are engaging with the with the economy? Do they have access to economic opportunity? And what risks are they facing? And what can we do as a community development field to help mitigate some of those risks and invest in, in those communities to help them thrive? I think a lot of us think of the Federal Reserve more nationally, but this is a Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Do each of the banks sort of have a different focus? 
Yeah, so that's a fantastic question. We get it all the time. The, the Federal Reserve is sort of an interesting institution. It's it's kind of a decentralized central bank. There are actually 12 regional Federal Reserves. I, I work for the San Francisco Fed, of course. And then we have the Board of Governors in, in Washington, D.C. And we all work together to execute monetary policy and work on those other issues I mentioned before. And we're sort of all focused on that singular goal, which is, again, to sort of promote a, a healthy and stable economy for everybody. Okay, great. So let's just jump into this. What is the community development? Innovation Review. And uh, Jesse, I'm going to ask you after this, but I want Ian to start us off. Sure. So so the CDIR, as we call it, is a journal that the Community Development Department at the San Francisco Fed produces uh, periodically. We, we put usually one or two issues out a year. And it's our attempt to, to really crowdsource a lot of the great ideas that are out there in the community development field and, frankly, other sectors to get interesting external perspectives on issues that are relevant and pressing and in the communities that we focus on. Usually the issue is sort of narrowly focused around a particular topic. The, the latest issue, of course, that we focused on was climate change risk in low-income communities, but we've also uh, published reviews on mental health, on uh, creative placemaking, uh, some performance-based contracting in the social sector called pay-for-success financing. It really runs the gambit. Whatever happens to be a pressing topic for our communities and our stakeholders, we, we try to produce an issue of the review to, to bring in as many voices as possible and give it the treatment that it deserves. I contributed a piece, and thank you again for uh, letting me contribute a piece, And but the, a recent issue was dedicated to climate adaptation, and so why this focus on adaptation? Well, I think for us, we are getting an increasing amount of questions from our stakeholders, from community developers out in the field from low-income uh, residents who are being affected by changes uh, in, in the climate, by policymakers, by foundations, investors who are all kind of trying to wrap their mind around this particular issue. And it was an opportunity for us to assert ourselves as a neutral convener of all those ideas and bring them together in one place for our audience to digest. And uh, we're just trying to sort of meet the need has been sort of put to us by, by our communities and by our stakeholders. So Jesse, you were recruited to edit this particular review. Can you give some background on that? I, working with the state of California previously, was one of those stakeholders and benefited very much from the convening power of the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank and understood the real opportunity to connect with the diversity of constituents, both in and outside of the financial world. And for me, community development is not my formal sector of core expertise or subject matter competency. I'd in fact, I think very often sort of relegated community development to affordable housing and social impact investing and some other things. But I frankly had a relatively narrow view. And I think for me, it was a great opportunity not to necessarily onboard or help facilitate a dialogue about climate adaptation as much as it was uh, self-serving to learn more about community development and really get a better sense of the totalizing range of current and potential impacts, but also opportunities. And I think if one thing I think we learn from from this work is that yes, there's it's issue awareness, there's risk, there's hazard, there's much to be at at risk and much to be lost, of course. But there's a tremendous amount of opportunities um, to think about a more sustainable economy and a more sustainable way of life, particularly for low to moderate income households. And I think in that regard, there was a lot of cross learning between community development and the kind of formal interdisciplinary world of climate adaptation. Ian, 
uh, looking back on this review, it, it, there's a lot of substantive information. It really is a lot of great contributions. How does this inform, since adaptation is this kind of relatively new emerging issue, how, do, how does the Federal Reserve take this information? You're out there sharing it, but how does it inform you what, what you're doing? I don't want to overstate the impact of this particular publication on the Federal Reserve's policy positions. That's not what this was really intended to to address. This this really was just an opportunity for us to use our convening power to bring a bunch of really smart people in this area together to contribute on this issue. And I'm very proud of the, the net result. It's, it's a really interesting, I think, pretty comprehensive take on how this issue is going to impact low-income communities. You know, in terms of going forward, we're going to continue to research this issue. We're going to continue to convene stakeholders around it. I think as we gather more information, we'll have a clearer understanding of how climate change risk is manifesting in low-income communities, poor neighborhoods, and, and what we can do as a field to, again, help address that and, and mitigate some of the, the challenges that will come about as, as a result. And Jesse, maybe you could give us a sample. I know you can't mention everyone that contributed this, uh, and I have links to the actual review within my show notes, but just briefly, some highlights of what are some of the different topics and contributors to, to this review? You know, just to position your contribution, Doug, in terms of climate change communications, um, that was one of several threads. There's others that have spoken to the, the role of education and engaging uh, communities, not as a unilateral, but as a bilateral exercise to understand vulnerability, to relate climate science, and to make this a relative, a relational impact uh, and, and a challenge for all of us going forward. You know, I think the range of contributions are uh, about organizations management, about insurance, about thinking about your employees. You know, one thing that stands out in my mind is we have both contributions that speak to the role of community resilience in engaging youth in education, but we also have a contribution looking at public health and aging society as a component of climate change and community resilience. And I think it's important to see both ends of that spectrum. We have to understand, of course, that climate change is a part of global change and aging society is a critical component of that and certainly a critical component of low to moderate income uh, households and communities. And so really covers uh, a wide spectrum of activity in the public, private, and civic sectors. And I think that it's that great breadth that makes it, a, a, if anything, a very interesting read. Ian, so now that it's complete, it's available. How have you been sharing the, the review? You know, through a number of channels, we sent it out to our, our mailing list. We have about 30,000 folks who, who get our emails and we're sharing it uh, sort of at individual convenings where we're bringing community stakeholders together to talk about some of these issues. But can I make a sort of a larger sort of point about this? And that is, you know, of course there's, there's going to be a marketing component to it and there's going to be sort of an, an outreach strategy and, and we're, we've got a great team who's really pushing this out to a number of folks through a lot of different channels. But I think for me, the most important audience are the residents of these communities that, that we're, we're focused on. I think one of the, the messages that came out loud and clear to me when I was working on this issue is that historically, a lot of these residents and communities have not been actively engaged in processes, large uh, policy changes, infrastructure investment decisions, and that has put them sort of at a uh, disadvantaged position and, and where I think a lot of people feel like things are happening to them 
instead of being actively engaged in a process that advances their interests as well. And so I think for me, the, the primary audience for, for this, this issue is, is all of them. So they understand the levers that are out there, the decisions that are being made, how they can engage more actively and fully in uh, some pretty important decisions that are going to affect their where they live and, and where they work and you know what community they, they call home. And so I think above and beyond all of the institutional partners and, and stakeholders, I think individual low-income families will be empowered by a lot of the information that's that's in the journal. Okay, that's great to know. And I have a lot of listeners at the local government level. They work for organizations. And so I, I hope they will take a look at this and think of these as resources that they share with their constituents at that level that you're just talking to. Ian, so what's next for the Federal Reserve in climate adaptation? I think we're going to continue to research the, the topic. We're, we're working in coordination with our other Federal Reserve banks and our sister regulators to better understand the issue and it and how it impacts the economy. From a community development standpoint, this is going to be a topic of focus for us this year, certainly, and probably ongoing. We will continue to, again, conduct research and convene folks. And I know that that sounds like a pretty limited toolbox, but uh, the truth is, is that a lot of us in the community development sector, Jesse mentioned uh, that he's, he doesn't come from a community development background. A lot of us in the community development sector are, are just learning all this information about climate change adaptation and climate change risk and, and understanding how we can be better partners moving forward. So I think a big part of our agenda is just educational. Get the information in front of as many people as possible and continue to gather new information and be that neutral convener of ideas and, and best practices. Jesse, I'm going to ask you a few more questions in our conversation after this, but did you want to add any wrap up here? No, I, you know, one thing I just want to say is that, you know, this is, I think climate change in many ways becomes mainstreamed into, in community development, into affordable housing, into public health, into social impact investing. And in many ways, there's reciprocal learning, the engagement. But one of the things I benefited from was really just working with the community development team at the San Francisco Federal Reserve and Laura Choi and Jocelyn. And Covens and Naomi Citron and Ian and Laurel Gord and uh, Elizabeth Matsuizi and others who have really learned a lot. And I think in throughout the country, you'll find that there are community development uh, groups uh, within the various districts that are doing very important work. And I think it's a very important part of our, our broader education and research to, to engage community development in these issues. And for me, I learned a lot. I was very grateful to be able to participate. Okay, guys, thank you so much. I'm very encouraged. This is the Federal Reserve Bank getting involved with the issue of adaptation and providing some amazing resources. Uh, that is just very encouraging, and I, and I thank you for letting me be part of that. And uh, thanks again, Tommy and Jesse, for coming on. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Okay, we are back, and I am back with Jesse Keenan. Jesse, you just joined me with Tom and Ian from the Federal Reserve Bank, and we talked about the community review. I want to just close out that conversation. It was really great to have them on to learn what the Federal Reserve Bank is doing on the issue of adaptation. I encourage my listeners to take a look at the, the broader review. There's so much great material in there. And we're going to have a conversation about the climate intelligence arms race, which is based on an article you wrote, which was a fantastic article. But let's just close out our discussion with Ian and Tom. What do you think? As I said in, in our conversation, I came into my work with that group 
really not fully appreciating the range of activity, one that the Federal Reserve undertakes in terms of primary research, but also within the realm of community development, the really the tremendous role that they play in research and education. And for me, it was just a really, it's been past couple of years have been a great experience um, to work with really great people, to learn a lot and be able to contribute in a, in a small way, but hopefully a meaningful way. The Federal Reserve obviously knows what they're doing, but they brought you in to edit because you are one of the premier experts in the field of adaptation. And I, I think they wanted your thoughts on who should be talking, who should be contributing to this piece. So how did that whole process unfold? How do you, how did you recruit people to, to contribute? Well, the production of the, the journal was a couple of different facets. One there, I think there were some themes that were coming out you know, through stakeholder engagement, um, some open questions, if you will. And we wanted to address those and make sure that we had people covering them. The other component of the outreach and uh, was really a solicitation. So we had an open call for papers and people submitted abstracts of papers uh, and finally full papers. And that went through various editorial processes for uh, review and acceptance. So it was a, it was somewhat hybridized between a formal academic submission and really going out and soliciting a, a diverse group of contributors in practice and academics in the field. I think it was important for us to get a mix of voices in the review. Then if there's people that are contributing to it, this must have been nice for you. I mean, you, you, you know the space, but at the same time, was it, were there any surprises, anything you kind of learned from it? Well, I think that for me, I learned a lot about how about a fundamental challenge, which is that not just in community development, not just in philanthropy, but really across uh, many sectors, uh, both with, a let's say, a civic or social environmental impact intent and those that even, uh, for instance, may be engaged in for-profit activities. I think we in many ways share a, a common ambition to engage climate change, but we don't know where to start. How do we downscale the science in a way? And, and I don't mean that in a technical sense. I mean that in where do we begin? And who do we engage and, and who's driving a conversation that we should be listening to? And I think in many ways, and, and, and in community development, for instance, you know, there's a lot of folks that have done great work engaging workforce education and training, people working on affordable housing or transition housing. And yet, you know, they don't know where to begin with climate change. They want to engage it. They see the challenges ahead of them. Um, but they don't know where to start. And I think in many ways that was a part of the originating logic is to uh, help address some first order questions and really survey a field of questions, not, not so much the answers, but what are the questions that we're all asking each other? Because I think in that we share a certain common ambition, uh, certainly for um, that can be supported by research and education. And I think in that regard, we were successful. Okay, so Ian talked about it a bit, but I'm just wondering if you could elaborate the notion of who is this benefiting, who could sort of use this material. And he even went to the point of people within these communities hopefully will benefit from some of these conversations. What would you recommend? Like, think of my listeners. How could they take advantage of this material and learn from it and potentially even share it? What would you recommend? 
You know, I think Ian brought up a wonderful point, which is that, yes, there's a range of institutional stakeholders that are critical in the community development sector and in other sectors um, that were a component of the production of this. But there's also a constituency of low to moderate income households and really for constituency really from all across America that I think can begin to understand the decisions that they make in terms of, I think this is paraphrasing his idea, where to live, where to work. Um, how to lead our lives in the face of climate change and climate risk. How do we think about, you know, know, not just sustainable investment, but how can we have true impact in our communities? How can we communicate and engage? And I think that not all the articles are for everybody, but I think in many ways, readers will find a piece in there that connects with them. And and maybe that's just an opportunity to open the door to further reading and further engagement. And in that regard, I hope it's successful. And so I guess I have to ask you recruited me to contribute a piece about podcasting and adaptation communication thank you it was a great opportunity for me and i and i co-wrote the piece with dan accuracy and i have to give him credit what were you thinking i i appreciate people thinking about podcasts but what were you thinking when you recruited me well, I wanted to take on climate change communications. I think one of the challenges in the community development sector is how do you communicate to your constituency? How do you engage bankers, uh, designers, community planners, civic advocates, people who are peripherally engaged with climate? How do you communicate? How do you communicate to the general public? What is your role? And, and again, it isn't just a unilateral this is climate science, but a bilateral engagement. How do you sustain that bilateral engagement? And I think there's different forms of media and modes of communication um, that get us there. And certainly podcasting, I think, is an important one. And it's not just what happens on air in the episode. It's the it's the Facebook page. It's the conversations that happen in a network of community. And I think that that's, um, that's a real opportunity for many uh, civic and community development organizations is to sustain a network and to sustain a positive conversation about climate change. Thanks again, Jesse. It was it was certainly a privilege to be able to contribute something. Obviously, the Federal Reserve Bank, and uh, you, I appreciate you bringing me and Dan in, involved in that process. Okay, let's do a pivot here. We've talked about this community review, and we are going to pivot to an article that you, I think is very relevant to to these broader conversations. And it's I, I want to ask you to you can explain what journal and such, but you wrote an article called the climate intelligence arms race, which is a awesome title. What is the climate intelligence arms race and where was this published? Can you give a little bit of background on that? Yeah, sure. And before I do, I think it's uh, important for me to just further qualify that I'm speaking in my purely academic capacity uh, and not one associated with the Reserve Reserve Bank of San Francisco or as it currently relates to my position as a special government employee for the U.S. Commodities Futures Trading Commission. So I'm speaking 110% in my individual capacity as a researcher and faculty member at Harvard. The Climate Intelligence Arms Race is a a piece I uh, published this fall in the journal Science. And it really positions broader activities that have been emergent in the past couple of years about the demand, uh, in primarily in the private sector, but also in the public sector, for greater modes of intelligence about climate change impacts and how those impacts are impacting supply chains, physical exposure of assets, and working their way on up from asset classes to broader modes of market and financial stability. And 
And in this arms race, we're developing lots of technology, what I call climate services technologists or technologies. And these things are benefiting from research and development uh, and innovation financing and good old fashioned, you know, Silicon Valley investment. The challenges I raise are one of several. One challenge is that a lot of this is proprietary technology that's not externally validated. A lot of it is, but a lot of it is not. And I think there's nothing particularly wrong with that or inherently wrong with that. We want to promote proprietary technologies um, that can help us solve some of these difficult problems and help build a broader system of intelligence about how climate change impacts are affecting our broader market economy, as well as our 401ks, if you will. But the flip side of this is that, well, for Private market consumers, if this technology is no good and is not useful, then the market will determine who succeeds and who's not. But the challenge is when we're talking about capital planning, capital investment in the public sector, and we become in- increasingly reliant on these proprietary technologies, we need better oversight about external validation and about quality control. And it really opens up a broader public policy discourse about the public and privateness of data and about our capacity to think about what these black box models are really doing. Are they successful? Are they consistent with what products and services are being sold behind? them. We can't just hide behind the artifice of artificial intelligence and the like. And we already do this with medical devices and pharmaceuticals. We already have an open door from which we can engage proprietary technology and maintain trade secrets. And I think as we move forward in thinking about broader public policy decisions associated with, let's say, privacy and technology and privacy, we have to start to think about the the division of public and private data in meteorological services and broader ecosystem service producers and a broader world of climate services more formally. Um, Because if we don't get a handle of that, we're going to lose control. And when we lose control of that data, I think it's open to manipulation. It's open to misuse and misapplication. And frankly, we have a lot riding on this. And I think it's in the public interest to really begin to have this conversation. Okay, so let's make this a bring this down to like how people are viewing this climate intelligence. Who are sort of the players? Why why should a local government care or even a a private company just kind of bring that down to like how it's relevant to them? Sure. So there are a number of different firms. Some of these are startup firms. Some of these are established firms that have onboarded new technologies to parlay with existing services. For instance, in engineering firms, very large engineering firms. And I don't think it's appropriate for me to pick on a particular company. There have been some notable examples uh, in the press where certain companies have been selling a, a technology and a service that wasn't quite ripe or was inconsistent with with what uh, they uh, the bag of goods that they were selling. But this is really quite widespread. So if we think about from emergency planning or hazard mitigation, where to prioritize our investments of emergency response or where to build piece of infrastructure, to what extent should we build that level of service? Where should we have redundancy in our infrastructure systems? Where should we disinvest uh, when we're making? Uh, it's not always about investment. Sometimes it's disinvestment uh, strategically. So there's lots of decisions about how we 
invest in, in primarily in engineering resilience performance, but also sometimes emergency operations. And so it's a full spectrum of material and programmatic investments. There's a lot of specialized firms out there that are engaged in this. And I'll give you an example. One of the early stage climate services providers that was involved in the market economy was a group, and I think they were out of Philadelphia, and I want to pick on them because I think they do good work, uh, that helped the retail industry anticipate future weather and climate conditions. Um, because if you're a retailer and you overbuy too many winter coats in a warming uh, winter, you have a problem. And so they had to, well, and of course, you know, you have to do this many months in advance because of uh, supply chains and production and shipping and the like, uh, keeping up with seasonal styles. They, they produce many months in advance. And so there was a firm, and, and I'm sure there's many other firms, um, but that would help companies think about changing climate environment, uh, regional implications associated with this, and, and help retail suppliers uh, accommodate and adjust accordingly. That's a very small and maybe minor example, but really at this point in time, given the experience with shocks, um, not just the stresses of climate change, but the shocks as we understand with flooding and hurricanes and things like that. We've really come to a point where this is critical for nearly every company. This really started uh, in many ways, and it's been going on for many, many years, particularly in supply chain management. But after the Tohoku earthquake in Japan, Japan is so central to the global economy and the global supply chain. Many companies realized that when Japan went down, uh, even periodically for this earthquake, it had real bottom line impact. And so companies need to think about, well, what do we do? if this happens again? What are our redundancies in our suppliers, our supplier network? Um, how do we manage these disruptions? And even uh, it was reported at the time companies like Coca-Cola, Starbucks, and others began to build adaptation teams internally within their enterprises, um, not just as an enterprise risk management exercise, but truly within operations to begin to think about how they could accommodate uh, these disruptions. And so what you see now is greater maturity among market participants in this world. Walk me through, like, let's say someone wants to use these climate services. And as you are describing, it's still playing out what's reliable information. But let's say, I'm just kind of pulling this out as you're a landscape architect firm, and you're working with the city, and you're required to kind of think about what are the future climate impacts and you're walk that person through on how they should even go about starting that process. They don't have a climatologist on staff. And some of these services that you're talking about are things that they're going to tap into. Are they going on Google and just looking for this? I mean, how does this really unfold for people wanting to use this information? So there are dozens of different categories of climate services providers working in um, really every major sector at this point. But to pick up from where where you position us with a landscape architecture firm, um, working very often with a large prime contractor serving uh, generally an engineering firm, that engineering firm and many of the large engineering firms today, um, they don't just do engineering. They're very large conglomerates that handle management, operations, and even financing of projects. A firm like that will have their own climate services uh, specialty group and in a a lot of that work is pretty good. It really depends on um, what area. There's degrees, always irreducible uncertainty when you're talking about modeling and projections and the like. And it certainly depends on 
geography, market condition, I mean, any number of variables. There's range of quality of services, of course. But in this case, you know, thinking about future hydrological conditions, how that interacts with various basins, as well as stormwater management capacities, simulating different stochastic events or random events, storm events that may be overlaying with other chronic stresses like sea level rise. And when you begin to import, for instance, social or socioeconomic or specifically financial implications associated with capital planning. Should we invest in this sewer system versus sewer system A versus sewer system B? There's a number of different judgments and assumptions that require degrees of expertise, but also require integrated modeling and expertise with varying degrees of uh, empirical foundation. And so some firms are up to the task and other firms are perhaps more experimental. But the question is, if I'm a public consumer of these services, do I want the established person or do I want the more experimental? And I think one of the challenges we have is we it's very difficult for public consumers, not private sector consumers, but public sector consumers like a county or a municipality to understand whether this is, you know, is this an experimental method or is this something that's grounded in consensus-based standards within a profession? We don't know. Some It really varies where you are, and I think this is something that we need to get through. And contracting and procurement need to reflect these uncertainties. Okay, so I can just imagine even, let's say, in a major city that has staff, has access to some of these climate services, maybe in-house, and they're working – someone, I guess, puts forward a proposal for some development, and they worked with that private engineering firm that has their own sophisticated climate services, and they come together, and there's this issue of permitting, and you're just moving things forward. You could have potentially two very different – perspectives on what climate models will look like, that just seems like it's going to play out over and over, or am I oversimplifying that? Yeah, and I don't want to pick on large conglomerate engineering firms. Frankly, frankly, they've been probably doing the most work and have the most experience, particularly in the United States. But I think you're very right that two different firms could very well come up with two radically different outputs. And I think it's very difficult as a consumer of these services to understand the differential in methodologies and data source and the like to really un- evaluate ultimately at the end of the day, quality control. And it's not just about um, consuming that as a kind of moment in time where you support a single decision. A lot of these are ongoing relationships that are building measurement systems. So one of the things that people don't realize is that For instance, the Internet of Things is now and the low cost of hardware associated with environmental sensors means that we have an entire global body of data, uh, largely publicly funded, sometimes privately funded data sources that are feeding into this broader Internet of interconnected Internet of Things, rather, that's helping support the validation of our investments. Right. So if we build a wall and we don't know if this wall is actually keeping water out or water's going around or under who knows what. It's useful to have these measurement systems in place to understand uh, if these things are really working, if this is money well spent. You know, it isn't just a moment in time where we make a decision. These are con- these are continuous relationships where we're building out, you know, we talk about 5G and building out an infrastructure associated with telecom. Part of that is environmental measurement and environmental measurement technologies, which are helping us understand the full range of impacts. And then are our in- 
uh, interventions being successful. Some of the red flags to look out for, and you mentioned this in your article too, is that when you start talking about the issue of downscaling, when you have firms that tell you, oh, well, we can map out this <laughs> zip code level of downscales, those are some of the red flags that people should be looking out for because at what level can it still be reliable and, and kind of elaborate what you say in your article? Yeah, that, this is probably one of the earliest critiques of some of the limitations of the services being uh, sold uh, underpinned and underpinned by the technology was uh, the scale, both in time and space. It was not uncommon to see particularly smaller firms going out and uh, projecting their capacity uh, to get down to a lot and block scale. And of course, the scientific consensus, and, and, and because this varies by what we're modeling, what we're studying, but Let's just uh, assume in the physical sciences that uh, many of the uh, these, these capacities were, were many scientists and much of the scientific consensus and bodies of consensus were quite skeptical uh, about the methodological capacity and prowess of these these products and services. So that's one of many examples of the inherent limitation. And the question about you know is technology moving faster than we can necessarily keep up with to validate externally. Let's say you get into the issue of investment and you have major investors who are, are, you know, allocating funding for these things and they want that sort of climate disclosure. And maybe you can elaborate what that even means. But the notion of do you, you've done your due diligence on what, what people are factoring with climate change and are some of the big firms, investment firms, are, are they really using this sort of the best information they could be using? Yeah. And I'm not worried if the private sector engages with a one of these firms and it, it works or it doesn't work. You know, I, I think ultimately the, it's the onus is on the private sector to build their own internal capacity um, to resource appropriately their ability to select contract with and manage a relationship and really validate whether what the products and services they're getting are useful to them. And I think it is worth acknowledging that uh, degrees of uncertainty and degrees of, let's say, even statistical confidence bind between the the, the climate services technology community and those of financial investors, asset managers, and decision makers is very different, right? These are two different worldviews very often in the assumption of risk and uncertainty. But absent that, I, I do think you raise a really important point, which is that what and, – and then I think this is why we want to promote – climate services technologists, because we need that R&D. We need those advancements to help guide Vanguard. I'm just going to pick on Vanguard and uh, 401k or your investment, right? Your life savings and your retirement is caught up in one of these companies' capacity to manage their portfolios in a way that is accounting for pricing and risk associated with climate change. You know, our broader economy is, is in part dependent on our technological capacity to measure climate change impact and understand their associated relationships in terms of climate uh, pricing, but also financial stability. So in the article, you make some recommendations for quality control, which I think people are going to be desperate for in the years ahead. What are some of these recommendations? Well, I think the general recommendation um, is that if you're a consumer, and again, I want to focus in on public consumers, but I think you can make the same argument for private sector consumers. Maybe there's an opportunity to convene uh, review boards and at multiple stages of procurement and contract management so that you have some capacity uh, to have oversight over um, exactly what you're getting, exactly what you're buying. I think also when we get into the contracting 
to think about who gets to keep what data over time. I think we, in a way, lost a little bit of control and the imbalance in some of the contracting about who really owns what. Um, so there are contracts out there with these climate services technology firms, for instance, where the public may be producing, uh, uh, you know, a city of San Antonio, I don't know, I'm just saying, uh, produces some climate technology that has um, hardware that's measuring something, it's measuring water or, flat, water or flash floods, um, that data goes up, that's public data, right? And it goes up into some black box. And at that point in time, when it goes in the black box, it's now private. And in some of the earlier firms in the United States that were engaged in climate services, I say some of the, I'd say less reputable, but less innovative, if you will, were essentially just taking public data and repackaging it and selling it as a private good. And of course, that's the lo- there's a long history of this in real estate and weather data and many other things. But nonetheless, gaining control and oversight about authorship and maintaining uh, privileges of uh, trade secrets and proprietary data, but also having an eye for what is the public domain. And where our public investments are going in the production of environmental data. So th- this is one of many things, but I think really beginning the process of convening review boards and having a, a formal process in place where we can have some uh, control over uh, over these technologies, understand that we're getting what we're paying for. Related to that. There, there's going to be a tremendous demand for workforces to, to have the skills to kind of understand how to do this adaptation science. And let's say, again, the city government level or these engineering firms, what, what might that training look like? Are, are you starting to see that now? Yeah, I think this is really interesting. You know, inherent in the idea of adaptation and both transitional and transformational iterations of adaptation is, is human judgment. There's no optimization or no optimal associated about the division of resources um, when you're talking about people in place. But when we do begin to think about engineered material systems and the like, there are modes of optimization that can take or support multi-criteria decision-making, both in quanti- quantitative and qualitative terms. And I think when we think about it in those regards somewhat expansively, we have to recognize that really, whether you're studying civil environmental engineering, you're studying you know, quantitative financial engineering, you're studying public policy, public administration, I would argue, is probably one of the more important skills and professional callings in this world. You're going to have to have some understanding of the decisions support and the underlying analytical tools available to you um, to understand what these trade-offs are and understanding um, the the externalities, the internalities, the extent to which we are making good and potentially good and bad decisions for what constituency, over what geography, under what time horizon. And so I think my point being here is that across all professional domains and various uh, vocational callings, um, we have the opportunity to uh, internalize this knowledge, varying disciplinary knowledge of climate adaptation and learn something from it and apply it accordingly. So I don't think there's a singular professional track. Certainly in, in this world, uh, having greater financial literacy and financial uh, economic literacy um, is important. And there's really great economists out there and financial practitioners and frankly, business people um, who are deeply, deeply engaged in climate change. And I think that that's, that's a good thing. We've spent too much time teaching kids at business school about profit and wealth maximization without understanding our responsibility uh, to the environment and to society. 
a lot of this data that some of these private firms are using is actually data that's generated by the government, state government, federal government. Do you have a sense that these government agencies that produce this data are tracking how their information is being used? I mean, obviously, there's issues of liability that might come up if in, in a private firm's using in a certain way. But do you, are you talking with some of the, the government entities who produce the data and are they concerned? Yeah, I think in general, uh, the answer is no. Uh, it is very difficult to authenticate particular types of data. I will say in the EU, I was involved um, somewhat superficially with a group in an in a early stage dialogue about using blockchaining, for instance, um, to authenticate public and private data associated with climate change um, so that you could um, have some counterparty reliance on the authenticity of this data or at a particular moment moment in time, for instance, um, that I think you raise a really good point. And it's also worth acknowledging that there's a lot of, I wouldn't say citizen science, but there's a lot of just either amateur or even professional scientists or applied scientists or tinkerers, if you will, out there who are who are creating their own networks. I mean, it isn't just, you know, your county government hiring some contractor to go out and put in these little sensors somewhere. There's a lot of people that just independently find this really interesting and are creating their own their own measurement science and advancing their own measurement science. So um, I think that's actually a really exciting component of, uh, of citizen science in general. Your articles out there in science, is this uh, publicly available? Is it behind a firewall or anything? It is behind a firewall, but if you go to my webpage and just go to the publications, the tab on my webpage, you could actually access uh, a copy for free. Okay, great. And I'll, I'll have some links in my show notes too. All right, Jesse, you are a regular uh, contributor to this podcast, and I have a couple final questions, and I, I asked you these before, except for there's a new one, and I want you to think about. In the adaptation space, who has been one of the most influential people to you, even though I think you've been one of the most influential people to a lot of adaptation professionals? And this is different than recommending someone to come on. This is someone who's been very influential to you. Yeah, and I'm not sure what influence I've had other than my own students who uh, maybe regret taking my <laughs> courses over the years. But, uh, you know, there's a number of people out there that I think do work, and they may not call it adaptation. They may call it environmental management. They may call it you know, civic, civil works. There's a number of people. One person that comes to mind that's an unsung hero is a guy named Doug Yoder at the Miami-Dade County Water uh, Authority. He has been, uh, I think he's been there working at that authority longer than I've been alive. And he understands and has been a champion for public stewardship of resources uh, in the face of climate change and climate change impacts in a very disciplined and highly professional way. All right, so let's wrap this up. You know what's coming and, and i'm sure these are all people that could come on but who would you recommend to come on the podcast and you've given me recommendations offline before and they've come on but like who, who would you recommend now there's two people that uh, i'd really like to see contribute to the america adapts family and that's uh, maxine burkett and chip fletcher at the university of hawaii manoa uh, these are two leaders in their field i think what's happening in uh, hawaii not with just the science and applied science of climate change impacts but what's happening in terms of public policy and adaptation planning, there's good work. There's really good work. These two are among a, a small cohort of people in Hawaii, really actually a large cohort, but there's a dedicated group that are really getting 
some work done. Uh, they're changing the landscape, both in terms of a public uh, discourse, but also the public policy. And I think that's difficult when you're talking about the bridging the science and the policy. They work in different domains. Maxine's a lawyer and a law professor, and Chip is a scientist, but they, they're united by their capacity for leadership uh, and communications uh, to a, a diversity of constituents. And, I, and, and this is what I want to hear on America Adapts. And I think what's happening in Hawaii um, uh, across the Asia-Pacific region is something that I think is uh, something we can learn from, as well as the Caribbean. So there's much work to be done there, but those are two people that uh, I think would contribute a lot. I think that's where I need to go on location to do that recording. So <laughs> look into it. No, no, listen, we're going to do a live. Sh- we're going to do a live show there. Uh, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> I've already. Okay, it. excellent, Jesse. As always, a pleasure. Your episodes are just so full of information. And it, again, thanks for involving me with the Federal Reserve Community Review piece. And thanks for all that you do. Oh, listen, thank you for having me. And uh, it's great to always hear from you, but all all your listeners, which is an ever-expanding share of the market. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Ian Galloway and Tom Flanagan from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco for giving us some background on their community development investment review. Folks, it's quite an issue with tons of articles from some of the leading thinkers on adaptation and community development. I'm very encouraged that the Federal Reserve took a leadership role in bringing all these voices together. Links to the review are in my show notes. Please take a look. There's much to learn. And thanks to Jesse for editing that issue and for coming on to talk about the climate intelligence arms race. Many services and technologies will be coming online in the years ahead, many integrating climate data. How can practitioners have confidence this information will be useful and accurate? Well, as Jesse shared, it's still an emerging area, and those who are not only innovative in this space, but reliable managers of information are likely to do well. It's still a bit of the wild, wild west in this area. It's exciting, but something also to be cautious about. Okay, also relevant to the Community Development Investment Review, I wanted to share a quote from Jesse. Recently, Senator Elizabeth Warren sent a letter to the heads of all the major banks encouraging them to plan for climate change. In her official letter to the banks, she actually included a quote from Jesse and his work in the Community Development Investment Review. Here it is. According to Jesse Keenan, the editor of the San Francisco Fed's publication, quote, the private sector has always adapted. One either adapts to new markets, products, or services, or they go out of business. But the current calculus is more than a function of market share. It is a function of where there will be a market at all. Senator Elizabeth Warren. Very cool. This came out just after we recorded our episode, so very timely, and also demonstrating the influence of the review. All right, some final housekeeping. I'm excited to share this new work that I'm doing. I want to mention that I'm working with Simpatico Studios. I mentioned this in my last episode, and going forward, you're going to hear a lot more about Simpatico. I'm going to be hosting live talk shows on Simpatico TV. Simpatico Studios is a new software television company that produces live stream talk shows about important business and social problems, policies, and innovations. I will be anchoring, appropriately, the Climate Adaptation Channel, where I will interview academics, policymakers, journalists, researchers, climate adaptation professionals, just like yourself. Simpatico is an invite-only professional network, and I'd like to personally extend an invite to all adapters interested in joining a community of peers. Our television shows will be live-streamed, meaning you can interact directly with me, my guests, and other community members in chat during the actual interviews. I'd also like to invite adapters to join me as a guest on my upcoming pilot episodes. If you have a specific problem, policy, best practice, product, or program that you'd like to highlight to your peers, we're ready for your debut on Simpatico. 
Videos from all episodes are professionally produced, and you can use them on your own website and social channels like YouTube. In the show notes, you'll find a link to request an invite to Simpatico. Yes, I know that this seems like something very new and different for me. Check out the link to learn more. It's something I'm doing parallel with the podcast, but it'll be an opportunity to have a lot more conversations than I do here on the pod. And again, we're in the process of recording pilot episodes. Maybe you and I can have that next conversation. So check out the link in my show notes to learn more. I hope to hear from you. Okay, I want to thank all my supporters who have generously donated to the podcast. Thank you. This is a small nonprofit organization and your support is critical. For those who are regular listeners and are looking for a charity to donate to, consider America Daps and be part of telling all these adaptation stories. And thanks to everyone who's been promoting their favorite episodes on social media. And thanks for tagging me and thanks for sharing. Word of mouth recommendations are the most important way podcasts grow. Also, if you and your organization are interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. There are so many stories to tell on this emerging issue of adaptation. Let's see if we can collaborate. And don't forget to check out the Podcast in the Classroom initiative we're doing. I hear from a lot of professors who have their students listen to it. We have created some discussion guides, and they're discussion guides for eight of my episodes. You can find them in my show notes and at the website, americadapts.org. It is a personal mission to get more professors and teachers using podcasts in the classroom. Your students will thank you for it. Also, if you are interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. Folks, I speak a lot, and you're going to enjoy what I have to say. I've been doing some keynote presentations, and they're a lot of fun. I'll be speaking in Colorado at the Colorado Water Congress, and I'm also lecturing a class at the University of Arizona. So I love to speak. Reach out. Let me know if you're interested. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but search for America Daps and ask to join. I'll prove you right away. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Seriously, it is so cool. I love hearing from you. I've been hearing from people in the last couple of weeks, people who listen to the podcast, people who have ideas for guests. They share where they found the podcast. It truly is just great hearing from my listeners. And you guys are from all over the place with such diverse interests and diverse backgrounds. Thank you so much for listening, but definitely reach out. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.